Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back, everybody. We're here for another episode of the Latter-day Contemplation Podcast with guest co-host Shiloh Logan. Riley Risto's still on spring break, having a good time skiing with his friends, flying in his daughter, going out to dinner and whatnot. It's good to be with you, Shiloh. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Yeah, thanks for coming on again. And today we're going to talk about another beatitude, this time hungering and thirsting after righteousness and being filled. That sounds really good. Yeah, I, I'm excited because uh, when you said, hey, would, would you uh, come on again? I'm like, well, that's awesome. Let's do another beatitude. <laughs> Let's do another beatitude. I knew you'd say that. So yeah, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. This is, you know, so this is really building on what we talked about last week, right? Because the there are eight beatitudes and this is the fourth of the eight beatitudes. And when we really think about it, the, each one is sequential. It one leads to the next. And one of the things that I don't know if I really brought out last time was that the beatitudes are not supposed to be seen as prescriptive. It's not that you have to it's not that you have to do this. And in fact, it's one of those things that is, you kind of have to start at the very beginning. And then the Beatitudes are largely descriptive as once you get the ball rolling, everything else just kind of happens. Now, what do you mean when you say start at the beginning? So when we say start at the beginning, it's, it's to start the first things first. So the very first Beatitude is always the most difficult to talk about. So to talk about the poverty of spirit, to be poor in spirit, you know, and they get the kingdom of heaven. That's always the most difficult one to really wrap your mind around. But once once that's understood, everything else just kind of falls into place. It's it's like you just you, you compact a really I don't know if anybody's from Utah. When I when I used to live in Utah, there's a type of snow that you know it's it's so dry, it's really hard to compact. You know, and and so that's what makes Utah snow so good. But it makes horrible snowballs. And so, but once you're able to like once you're able to like get get this this uh, snowball compacted down and you kind of toss it down. Then it starts to gain momentum, and as soon as it starts to gain a little bit of momentum and it builds on itself, it, it does. It snowballs all the way through, and so each one of the Beatitudes, once you kind of see how you're supposed to talk about these, it just kind of makes everything makes sense afterwards. So Shiloh, what you're saying is we can't really talk about this Beatitude, the hungering and thirsting after righteousness and being filled in a vacuum. It has a context, which is all the Beatitudes that came before it. Right. Well, it's a good thing we have episodes on each one of those then <laughs> we have but we can still try to put this we have, one in context, and you know right? the, the you know the last episode when i you know is uh just before you were able to come on and, and and start doing some great work here we talked about mourning didn't we? we we talked about mourning and then the the last episode we talked about meekness and this one is about hungering and thirsting after righteousness so it, it does seem like we're unintentionally just <laughs> progressing through them which is awesome and um, what about the rest of them did we did you and riley record episodes on those I think we did one on the Beatitudes. I'd have to go back and look. I think we did one specifically on the Beatitudes where we talked about this. Um, but I don't know if we, we haven't done a treatment of each one in specifically. So I don't know if we did the poverty of spirit specifically. I'd have to go back to look. 
Um, but in this, just for our case today, the poverty of spirit really takes in this, it's a very complex, it's a very simple, but a very complex idea. So the poverty here is, it's simple because the word for poverty that's used here, in the New Testament, there's two Greek words that are used for poverty. One is that you just can't make anything more than your daily bread. Like like you work all day long and you only make enough money to be able to pay for one meal at the end of the day. If you don't work, you don't eat. And so you're paid at the end of the day for that day's wages and it's only enough to get you to get by the next day. And that's what we call living hand to mouth, right? That's hand to mouth, right. And then there's another type of poverty where it is you are completely at the whim of someone else's charity. Um, you have no arms or legs. Uh, you, ha- you're, you have no sight. You can't hear anything. So you're, you're, you're deaf and dumb. And you can't hear anything. And, and you have no context to the world. You're not going to survive this world without the help of someone else. I'm guessing that's the one we're going for. That's the poverty of spirit here. So what this is basically trying to show us is that it, it, it's that moment when we reach the end of our tether. Um, I, 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 worked for a, I worked for a gentleman for, for many years. He kind of became a mentor for me. And he was a, he was a Christian, Christian man. He wasn't a, a Latter-day Saint. But he taught me so many things about God. And one of the, things, one of the lessons he taught me was that God always comes right when you need him, not a second before and not a second after. And I always thought he was crazy when he first said that. <laughs> he first said that. And one of the lessons that he taught me very early on was this reliance on God to, to just come to him and say, God, I can't do this anymore. And, and sometimes it was more of an emotional giving over than it was a physical giving over. Um, he knew he would still have to get up in the morning. He knew he'd still have to go to work. He'd, you know, he'd still have to do his, put, put in the hours. But it was this emotional, I'm giving all of my emotion and all of my identity and all of my, my worrying to you. And I'm just not going to do this anymore. And I'm going to let you take care of it. And this is at the point of, I can't even live hand to mouth anymore. Yeah. It's, it's like, I, I, I just cannot even, my life cannot go forward even one more second until I'm just, I'm leaving this alone. I'm, I'm giving this over to you. You know, cause a lot of the times we carry our own burdens, you know, very Pilgrim's Progress style where we just keep on he- heaping burdens on top of ourselves and more on top of ourselves. And, and then we, we craft narratives that somehow we're supposed to have these burdens because somehow these burdens may give us identity. Maybe these burdens we think are penance for something because of some other false identity. But regardless, we keep heaping these burdens on top of ourselves until finally there comes a time of just saying, God, I can't carry this anymore. And I, I've often wondered about God's perception when he sees us. Um, I know for me personally, I've had a few experiences where <laughs> where I came to God and I was like, listen, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm giving this to you. And just my relationship, my own personal relationship with God is I very much pictured him. And I had this sense, this, this sense of him smiling and saying, well, that's, that's nice. I never asked you to carry it to begin with, but, but definitely set it down. I I'm here for, I'm, I've always been here with you. I've always been trying to help you let that one go, but, uh, I'm glad you're finally in a place to see, <laughs> to see that. And, and sometimes that's frustrating for me. And I'm like, ah, I was carrying, I didn't even need to. But I had a, a real life experience of this, Shiloh. I went to see a guy to talk to a guy about some problems, and he said, You know what? It sounds like you need rock therapy. I said, Rock therapy? He said, Yeah. 
come outside with me. So we go outside to his garden and he's got these big bricks that delineate his garden. You know, those kind of landscaping bricks. Oh, yeah. And he picks one up and he hands it to me and he tells me to outstretch my arms, to hold them completely outstretched and to hold this brick. And so I'm standing here holding this brick and he just stands there and stares at me. And I'm just holding the brick and I'm thinking, man, I don't know if I can keep this up much longer. And I look at him and he looks at me and I look at him like, well, and he looks at me like, well, and I said, I don't know if he's, and he just says, I, well, are you going to let go? <laughs> he's just waiting for me to let go. I'm waiting for him to tell me I can let go. And he's just like, I didn't tell you who said you can't let go. That's exactly right. That's rock therapy. That's rock therapy. I love that. <laughs> You know, so often in our lives, we think we have to carry these burdens because of some kind of misinformed meaning that we've attributed to it. And, and so it's this, this moment of coming into a relationship with God where we feel we have to get his approval or his authorization for us to let these things go or, or possibly just for him to take over because we can't control anything anymore. And we come into this place where we realized we, when we realize we never had control to begin with. You know, control is very much an illusion. And so this poverty of spirit is speaking to these moments. You know, at birth, the first thing we're given really is language. And that's given to us in many different ways. The second thing, you know, we're given different identities. We're given, we're given nationality. In many cases, we're given religion. Um, and then we are informed how this nationalism works, our place in the world. Um, our society informs us by our socioeconomic status, by our ethnic status, by our racial status, by our religious status. All of these things inform identities about how the world informs us of who we are and, and our place in it. Yeah. And then we're given these double binds, right? So be yourself and make sure you fit in. <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. These, these contradicting things. And, and so people don't know how they fit into their place. It's like, how do I plug in and how do I plug in or plug out? And, and I know you and I have talked about this a lot before. And I think even last time you're like, this plug analogy doesn't really land for me. <laughs> I hope it lands for our listeners. Okay. So, so I'll, I'll go ahead with it. But, you know, I, in my mind for the longest time, I've had this idea of, of like a, a vest that we wear that is just full of like sockets for like electrical sockets and plugs. And we have wires and plugs hanging off uh, of this vest that we wear. And, and so metaphorically, how, how this works is that when we come up to someone new, we start taking out our, our wires and our plugs and each one has a different unique plug. And so we start like trying to fit in our plugs into their sockets. And, and this is one of those things of like trying to meet someone new to find out if you have any commonalities, any common meanings or stories. And so we're trying to like plug in and, and if we find a place that we can plug into them, well, that's awesome. We can see us being friends and now they're trying to plug into us, but what happens if they don't find a place that they can plug into us? Well, from their point of view is we can plug into them, but they can't plug into us. So this relationship is, gonna, is not going to work. But sometimes, sometimes two people can plug in and all of a sudden it's a beautiful thing, right? And, and we do this with everything. We do this with groups. We do this with, with organizations. We do this with all sorts of things. And sometimes we plug into groups with multiple plugs. And so we have multiple layers of meaning. But sometimes we start to realize that 
a plug that we we thought fit one time is it's like putting a puzzle <laughs> a puzzle together and anyone who's ever done a puzzle knows that sometimes you just become so frustrated with a puzzle you like start forcing puzzle pieces together you're like I don't care if that goes together I'm going to try to make that fit <laughs> right and and so we try to force our plugs in and and I know for me I, I sometimes I'll get a plug and it doesn't fit it's not supposed to fit but man I'm going to make it fit and then it's really hard to come undone at the end of it. And I realized, man, I shouldn't have really tried to force this to begin with. And and this is kind of how our relationships go with with other people and with even with ourselves. We, you know, we plug into ourselves a lot and and try to see if if we're still kind of having the same internal messages and identities that that we can live with. At any rate, the part of the part of the poverty of spirit is and a lot of this just boils down to the point of can we just let ourselves let go of these plugs? Can we take off this vest and just stand there as a human being in front of another human being? Naked? Naked, right? Divested of all these identities? Right. It's not as easy as it sounds. No, it's not. Because our entire way that we are taught in our culture and that our kind of our psychology has evolved is that we need to have these plugs to be able to fit in. But see, but see, here's the thing we talked about last week with, with meekness is that we use these plugs to constitute the way that we belong to the world, that, 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 we, that we inherit the world, that we, we use these plugs to inform us of how our place is and in, in our, in our function and purpose in society and in our social groups and even in just our own individual identity. Let's stay with the idea of inheriting the world a minute. I like this idea because it, this is the false way of inheriting the world, right? If I plug in in a certain way, then I'm going to have the, I'm going to fit in. I'm going to have the right to belong in some sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because we, we sense that our belonging comes from us being able to plug in as much as we can, we have plugs. That's how we belong. Or people plug into us, right? And that's our popularity. You know, we have so many plugs and so many people plug into us and that's how we, we constitute popularity. People listen to us. They think that, uh, no, what I have to say is important. And that's how belonging in the world works in, from a worldly perspective. Right. But this poverty of spirit is, a, is letting that all go. It's just taking that off and standing there as just a, a, a human being. And, you know, so this goes back to what we talked about last week with Christ's temptation when Satan comes along and says, if you worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. And in this, Christ... We, we typically use the justifications, you know, the plug justifications, and we use kind of a John Locke's uh, sense of property in, in that Jesus mixed his time and labor in creating the world. So that's why it's, it's actually his. And so part of our, our, our way of looking at this is to say, well, you know, Jesus made the earth and he mixes time and labor. So that's why it was his. So why would he worship Satan when it was he or he recognized it was already himself, that it was it was his own. Now, that's if we... Not- if we think of that as the wrong way to look at it, and before we go into the right way to look at it, let's just let that sink in a minute. We have this idea that comes from John Locke that we made up, somebody made up, and that's now going to explain how it is that Jesus inherits the earth, or the earth is his, the creator of the, of the, of the earth, right? This is so, it's so right, right? This is what we do. Yeah. And this is not what the Sermon on the Mount is telling us at all. This is not what the scriptures teach us. 
No, no. It's teaching us the opposite of that, right? Um, you know, John Maynard King's, and I'm, I'm going to butcher the quote. Um, I'm not a, necessarily a fan of his economics, but I love this quote that he has. Um, and I said, I'm going to butcher it. But he's, he said, you know, most people think that they're above having any economic influence by any kind of um, philosopher or economist anywhere. He says, but come to find out, their opinions are usually the digested opinions of some defunct economist. Yeah. Or political philosopher. Or political says. philosopher, right? Yeah, and the and the supreme irony of it is, it's him. Yeah, we're, we're slaves to his <laughs> ideas without even knowing who who he was. Yeah. Right, right, and one others. The, one of the greatest ironies there, and so, in this way, I think a lot of the times we need to recognize that that which we take as reality is really just a filter that we inherited from some person's musings even two, 300 years before us. Yeah, let me go into that, Shiloh, because, you know, you and I studied philosophy. That's how we met. We were philosophy majors at BYU. I remember how I got into philosophy. I was taking that required humanities class that we all have to take to get a degree, and that included an introduction to some philosophy, right? Humanities means philosophy and architecture and art and letters and whatnot. And that was my first exposure to philosophy Really, and what I what I found is I thought, wait a minute. So you're telling me this is my reaction to to this exposure to philosophy. You're telling me that this way of being, this air that I breathe, these ideas that are part of everything that I know, how I see the world, they came from some guy. Some guy just made this up. And then I said, well, how do I know he's right? And that, according to my first philosophy professor, was when I became a philosopher. How do I know he's right? And there are other ideas that contradict these. That contradict these. So what we have is, as John Maynard Keynes says, we have these ideas that are these, as Ayn Rand put it, they're these undigested slogans. And I'm not necessarily a fan of Rand, but she's got this right. We just live our lives according to all these undigested slogans without actually doing our own thinking about it. And she wouldn't say this, but how about without looking into the scriptures and seeing what God has said to us about it? Yeah. And when God tells us something about it, he's telling, he's always starting with repentance. And repentance is the process by which we give up the false perceptions that we have that we inherited in this life to learn to see him differently. And when we see him differently, we learn to see ourselves differently. And when we see ourselves differently, we can't help to see other people differently. And the whole and, world. Yeah, and then the whole world. It, and, and just, it trickles out. And, you know, this is, I, you know there was trickle down, trickle down economics from Reagan. This is more like trickle out theology from Jesus, right? So it's just, <laughs> it's just kind of a different way of looking at it, I guess. But yeah, once we've emptied out... And, and now I have to explain this because once we go through the whole Beatitudes, we're, that's not the point of uh, our conversation today. But when you work your way through the whole Beatitudes, the very last Beatitude is to be persecuted for righteousness sake. And those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so it's really important to recognize in our discussion of the Beatitudes that emptying a word that's been ascribed to the first Beatitude of being poor in spirit. Emptying is not a one-time process. Emptying is a, is a lifetime endeavor and pursuit because we are consistently informed by our world 
by worldly identities, and we subconsciously put these identities on us ourselves all the time. So it's a consistent work to be able to see God anew and to see ourselves anew and to see the world anew. There's, there's no arriving in this life. This is all about a journey. And so the way that the Beatitudes are structured rhetorically is to connect the first Beatitude to the last Beatitude. Because the, po- the poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of heaven, and those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake get the same kingdom of heaven, thus to show that no matter how high you ascend this hierarchy, you always get the same thing that you got at the very beginning. That you've already always had. And that you've always, always had, right. And so it's, it, you just kind of begin at the beginning again. So it's the beginning, the, the first becomes last and the last becomes first. Yeah. I think I can give an example of, of why it is that we have to do this over and over. Because when you say persecuted for righteousness sake, let's say we get to that level. And now we think that because others don't agree with the undigested slogans that we've undigested, that we've taken on and digested, right? Then, and, and they're on Facebook and they're arguing with us and we have the right slogans and they have the wrong slogans when in reality, neither one of us does, right? But we think we have the right ones and they have the wrong ones. Now we're persecuted for righteousness sake. Something like that. Yeah. You know, it's a and we've phrase lost that, the plot. Yeah we, we, yeah, we lose it at that point. And it's a, it's a phrase that I, uh, I came up with a while back, but it's that today's or yesterday's transformation is today's ego trip. Oh, that's good. Yesterday's transformation is today's ego trip. Let that sink in. Oh, man. <laughs> so Thanks when, for that, Shiloh. I needed that. Yeah, because we, we do. We have these moments of awe. We have these moments of transformation, and they are real transformational moments. And... Then we go back to them, and sometimes by just going back to them all the time without consistently having transformational moments, we end up building again the the layers of ego and of false identity on these moments that we had that were real moments. And so that's why every single day has to be an emptying process. And that takes a lot of humility. And humility is something I, I definitely have to work on. That's one of those things I really hate praying for. <laughs> I just... <laughs> I just, that's like the last thing in the world I ever want to pray for is humility because God doesn't just give you humility. He gives you experiences to cultivate humility. And I hate those experiences, Yeah. but, but you know, it's, it's, it's just those, those, those moments. So, so Shiloh, we don't, we don't just have to go through these, we don't just have to go through the Beatitudes, so to speak, systematically. We also have to cycle through them. Yes, it is very cyclical. It's, and it's a, it's a lifelong cyclical process. So they build on each other, and then when you get to the end, you're back at the beginning. Yeah. This reminds me of the stages of grief. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's, there's a lot there. A lot, and we begin to see how a lot of psychology and a lot of modern awareness to these issues, we, we reframe them in new words and in, and in new ways, but it's the same patterns. And so we begin to realize these are very much perennial truths and, and, and processes that, as I said at the beginning, the Beatitudes are not a prescriptive way of being. It's a descriptive way of what a, what a person is who is becoming like Christ. And so once we find out that blessed are, it's not that God is coming out saying you should or thou shalt. These are blessed are. It's like, listen, there are these types of people, and this is what God would do if God were here. 
We talked a little bit about that last week with what blessed means. And it's this kind of a complicated word in the context that some authors have brought into this meaning that if if God were here personally embodied, he would be doing this very thing with you in and of himself. And come to find out, we do see Jesus doing this in his 40 days fasting. And, and that's what it is. It's an emptying. He's emptying himself and he's not he's not filling himself with any of the world's the world's anything. He goes out into the wilderness, the proverbial area where no man has been. And from there, he divests himself. He, he, he lets go of everything. And when he comes back in, he's immediately tempted. When he comes back into civilization, he comes back into that order. He's immediately tempted. And he's tempted by being filled with that which is not correct to be filled with. Turn this rock into stone, or turn this stone into bread, rather. And so... Satan's playing on the appetites of being filled. And then Satan plays upon the, the appetite of being, you know, the, the meekness appetite. You know, look at all these kingdoms. I'll make all these kingdoms yours if you bow down to worship me. And the thing is that we have to recognize is that Christ's temptations were temptations. That the embodied God in Jesus Christ was literally tempted. He was tempted to do this. And if Christ can be tempted to do this, it wasn't that Satan came tempting, but Jesus was like, I'm not tempted by anything. I'm completely empty. No, he was tempted. But it's the power of being emptied that allowed him to assert his meekness. So in the temptation, we we see that Christ is tempted in these matters and he overcomes them. And in that same way, it's, recognizing that emptying doesn't mean that we are simply going to be completely now turned off to the world, that we're not going to associate with the world anymore. Because Christ's life becomes the evidence of what it means to be a beatitude person who has emptied, who doesn't have to plug into the Jewish system anymore, who doesn't have to plug into the Roman system anymore. So when we see him coming into conflict with all of the the Jewish leaders and the Herodians and, and the Romans, Jesus is no longer in association and identity with them. He, his, his point of being able to preach, and, that, and that's one of the, the fascinating things, is that when you end up in uh, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, because he comes out of the wilderness and he immediately begins to talk about the Sermon on the Mount, and after, <laughs> after he's done with that, you can probably hear me flipping my pages, I'm getting, getting there, but it says that when they, they came and they listened to him, they were astonished because he talked as one having authority. <laughs> they're like, they're like, you don't, you don't talk like everybody else just quoting from the scripture. You talk from this inner source. He tapped into that. He'd let go of all of the need to quote everyone else. He just spoke truth because he had tapped into the universal perennial truth of what it means to be Christ. He was the embodiment of Christ, Right. So in this, we, we come, come to this discussion of finally when we're, we are so meek that we have let go of all the identities of the world, that's when we gain everything. You know, it's like in the, the movie The Incredibles, when, when uh, at the very beginning, when it's, it's a syndrome, I think it's named Syndrome, it's been a while since my kids have watched it, <laughs> and I've watched it with them. But where he's trying to find, uh, he's trying to, to make sure that when everybody's super, no one is. Uh, it's, it's that same kind of idea that when you finally belong nowhere, you suddenly belong everywhere.
Yeah, it's interesting to note as you say, you know, Jesus is now he's he's given up all these identities, you know, he's given up the world. Let's say he's given up the world and yet he's in it. And in fact, it's after the temptations, it's after those 40 days in the desert and after and and all that emptying and after the temptations and the meekness and being filled with righteousness, which we're getting to, right? It's after that that he actually begins his public life. He's more in the world than ever. Yeah. But he's not of it. That's right. Yeah, this this is how we begin to to see those kinds of phrases, and those fra- kind of phrases actually begin to make sense. Um, because in a lot of the ways we think that, oh, we know we're just going to go do all the stuff that the world does, but then we're going to live our standards. And, and that's what it means to live in the world, but not of the world. Live our standards, but then not participate in, in certain things like I'm not going to go drink whiskey or wine. And so I'm, I'm in the world, but I'm not of it because the wine is of the world. And that's not it at all. There's so much more to this than that. It is. We're going, we're going so much deeper with, with this whole discussion. It has to come in. And that's really why we have to spend so much time on being poor in spirit. Because once we really get that concept, that is the hardest thing I've, that's the hardest thing I've ever had to do is to really confront my earthly identities as earthly identities and then work to just let them go. Yeah, try doing this inner work and writing your social media profile bio <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work. That's 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 awful. Um so hopefully with 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 this discussion when we turn to the book of Enos we can begin to see patterns in the book of Enos that we may not have seen before, right? So I'm going to read it a little bit here from the first six verses, maybe the first seven verses, and we're going to start to see some patterns that may emerge that we hadn't noticed before. Now, what brings up the book of Enos? So the book of Enos is is one of the best stories about being filled with righteousness. Okay. And it, because it really does lead you through the whole process of of being poor in spirit, of emptying, of mourning, of being meek. It leads us into being filled. And then it leads us into this concept that we're going to talk about with having peace versus having wonder and awe. All right. So in in this, in the first book of Venus, in, in verse one, there's only one book of Venus, so, or one chapter anyway. Behold, and it came to pass that I, Enos, knowing my father that he was a just man, for he taught me in his language and also in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, and blessed be the name of the Lord God for it. Now, first of all, uh, he recognizes that he's taught in the language of his father. So in modern, in modern philosophy speak, to recognize your language and the language that you speak, to even have a knowledge of the language that you are speaking of, is highly significant. Now, in his day, language had a little bit of a different connotation. But in, in our application of this today, we have to recognize that language really does shape the entire way that we think about ourselves and the world around us. At least that's one hypothesis, right? The Safra-Whorf hypothesis, hypothesis says that we actually think according to our language and that we cannot think outside of that. Yeah, I mean, and, and there are evidences for this are everywhere. You know, down in, down in uh, South America, there are tribes that have no language for mathematics, that they've never developed a language for numbers. And so they struggle with having any knowledge of, of quantity. 
because they've never evolved, their language has never evolved to to accommodate this. Our language, for instance, um, we have a very individual and a very self-centric language. So for instance, when we are asking for directions, if, if, if you're looking at me and I'm looking at you and, and I say, yeah, go turn right. And, I, and I'm looking down the street to, to, you know, where your back is faced. And if I say go right, well, that's to your left. And, and so our, our, even our directions are very individual centric. And so we almost have to place ourselves in the, in the person, in the other person's experience to say, go right, go left. Where in other cultures and other languages, they have no right, left direction qualification. The, the, that idea doesn't exist there. Whereas they use cardinal directions to give their directions. So it's, you go west and then you go east, or you go north. From this starting point, this is how you do it. You go west. And this. and so it's more of a broader cardinal. And that still carries with it some individual experience. Yeah, I just read or heard somewhere the idea that of a language where there's no word for yesterday, today, and tomorrow, where there's just the same word, and you just point either back, forward, or up, or something like that. And even that has a sense of being in a timeline, right? Which, according to the religious scholar Mircea the ancients didn't have, that they actually thought of time cyclically. So there's that too. Yeah. See, language really impacts the way that we think about things um, and in ways that we don't often consider. And so that's just one of the very first things that right off the bat here at the story of Enos is that he's recognizing the language of his father and he's gra- he's grateful for the language that he has that has brought him to a knowledge that where he's come to. And I will tell you, he says in verse two, of the wrestle which I had before God, before I received a remission of my sins. Behold, I went to hunt beasts in the forest and the words which I had often heard my father speak concerning eternal life and the joy of the saints sunk deep into my heart. All right, so now he's starting to, he's going out to hunt beasts. And, and there's a lot that's been written on this story that we're not going to get into about what, what this can mean as far as his context, what he's doing. But he's now going out to wrestle before God. Now, to wrestle before God, this has a lot of symbolism into it, but this is not just a, God came down and gave me a really easy to understand lesson. And I just I just said, okay, God, and I walked away being edified. That's not what's going on here, right? No, even going into the forest to hunt beasts sounds to me like leaving the realm of order and going into the realm of chaos. Right. There's an emptying there. There is an emptying there. He's he's going out, and, and it's and it's going out into a wilderness area away from the place where his father taught. So it's it's almost like I was going out into this place where the the sanctity of what my father taught me was not there. You're leaving behind categories, right? Yeah, you're leaving behind categories. You're leaving behind a lot of things, but you you bring with you this idea of God comes into play, and of eternal life and the joy of the saints, and all of a sudden. You, you're starting to empty out the, the job by which you are doing. He's out hunting beasts, but now he starts to think about the principles of the cosmos, as it were. And now he's beginning to come into a different experience in the hunting the beasts he was doing. The trajectory he was on, the task he was at, is not what he's doing anymore. There's this a, a symbolic of this, a lot of this emptying. And he says, and my soul hungered. You know, so we get to this place where we are, we're, we're confronted right now with the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And I kneeled down before my maker and I cried unto him in mighty prayer, supplication for mine own soul. 
this is the poverty of spirit, right? And all the day long did I cry unto him. Yea, and when night came, I did still raise my voice on high that it reached the heavens. Now, part of this supplicating for our own soul is accompanied with the mourning. Because we can mourn for our own sins, but not all mourning is because of sin. And that's a really important distinction to make. Because a lot of the time, we just equate mourning with having done something wrong. So give us an example of mourning, and it has nothing to do with having done anything wrong. So... Is it this divesting oneself of one's uh, false identities or these worldly identities, and so we mourn for the lack of them, since that's who we thought we were, and now, in a sense, we've died, and we're mourning our own passing? That is a a, a very big one, right. Because there's there's no sin necessarily in these things. It's not that these things are inherently just sinful and wrong that we should feel bad about, but there does come a time, especially in my own life, when I've recognized this identity is just not working for me anymore. Yeah, they're they're necessary to some degree, right? They tell us how to fit in, how to plug in, as you say, how to fit in in the world, how to get by, how to get things done. There's nothing necessarily wrong with them. They work. They're useful until they don't. And I think Riley and I have talked about this before. They're they're useful until they're not. And when they're not, it's time to let go. Right. And to access something higher. There's a a famous, uh, I I think I brought it up last week, this story from Elder Holland, where he is is out in the southern Utah desert with his son. And he... He's coming home late at night, and they're trying to get back before the sun sets. And they come to a crossroads where they, they didn't recognize coming in, but now that they're going out, there's a crossroads, and they can't discern which one is the right one, you know, with tracks, you know, tire tracks or whatever. And so they pray to know which way to go. So they both feel very strongly to go right. So they, so they both go right. So so they go right. They go down 400 yards, and it's clearly a dead end. Hmm. And so they turn around, and they retrack retrace their tracks, and then they head out to go left. Clearly the right answer, he says. Choose and the left. He choose the left. <laughs> and and so his son asks him, he says, Dad, we, we both felt strongly about going right, but it was the wrong choice. Why? Good question. And Elder Holland, Elder Holland's, at least his response in, in this video, and one that I've found application in my own life many, many times, is that... Sometimes the Lord will send us down those 400 yards to let us know that this was a dead end. So that it's a, it's a type of mercy of realizing that this way was never going to produce the results that you thought it was ever going to produce. And so it allows a readjustment to go the other way with absolute certainty. That is a mercy. There's no second guessing that one. Right. What if we'd gone down on that, that other road? Well, we did. It's a dead right. end. Right. And what if we would have gone down two or three miles and like, uh, I don't know if this is the right road and we would have come back and then gone down the 400 yards to begin with. And then you lost all the time. So yeah, there's, there's a certain amount of wisdom in, in these 400 yards. And sometimes those 400 yards are of our own making. Sometimes they're of a divine making. I I think a lot of the times we ascribe far too much to the divine's uh, proactive, maybe like direction when the divine is always there, God is always there. But I think he lets us make a lot of these decisions on our own. There's a story I've told a bunch about my kids doing yard work. 
and about how I used to sit there and, and direct them in doing yard work all the time about how I wanted it done, how the, how it needed to get done. And it was always such a pain. <laughs> it, was, it was completely awful. And the work was always, it was always half of what it, I knew it could have been. The quality was awful. The, the time it took to do it was awful. Um, the experience was just awful. It just, it was, it was a pain until finally after several weeks, I was like, I'm doing this wrong. And then I said, guys, you do it however you want to do it. Don't listen to me anymore. You just do it however you want to do it. And I said, but here's some of the things that need to, it needs to kind of look like this at the end. You know, you know how a lawnmower works. Just go (laughs) do whatever pattern you want with the lawnmower. Go cut the bushes however you want to cut the bushes. And just so long first, as everything gets cut, right? Yeah, just so long as everything, you know, don't kill anything um, on purpose. Shiloh, but, it occurs to me that this is this is an example of you being in sin and repenting without the baggage, right? So sin here is just seeing things. Sin is a, the, the term means, it's an archery term, right? To miss the mark. Hamartia is the term. So you miss the mark in how to do this job. And so you repent and you see things in the right way. If you would do it this way, you would get a better result. And so you repent and you see things differently. And now you hit the mark, right? You get the yard work done with, with, and it's, it's less painful. The other way, it sounds like it would have been easier to just do it yourself. Yeah. And it often was, I often was like, you know what, you know, forget it guys. I'm just going to do this because I could get it done faster, better. And I didn't have any, I didn't have to bark any orders or make them feel uncomfortable or bad about themselves. I didn't have to be able to feel bad about myself. But allowing them their agency and their freedom to go out and to do this, and they made mistakes. They learned from their mistakes, and and sometimes they did things that took them longer. Sometimes it went faster than even what I had in, envisioned. But nobody died, right? These are just four hundred yard dead ends. No big deal. Four hundred yard dead ends. Um, yeah, sometimes I mean, if we're, if we're really upping the ante, some very serious <laughs> mistakes, you know, we don't want to have too many uh, fatalities at the end of our four hundred yards. But when we when we realize that sometimes the four hundred yards are of our own making, sometimes maybe they're of God's making, but I think they're far more often of our own making. And God is always there with us in that journey. I think that's what we just have to recognize that sometimes we're like, well, God led us here. <laughs> And I, and I've done this myself where I've had this, I've had these questions with, and, and I feel these responses coming as like, I, Shiloh, I, I didn't lead you down that path. That was all you, bud. But I've always been here with you. You know, when you said that Shiloh, and I know that if, if I, if my breath showed up on the, here on the mic while you were speaking, it would be edited out, but I really caught my breath, you know, to think that God is always there with me. I caught my breath. Yeah. That's so powerful. That's so comforting to know that God is always there with me. You know, it makes it makes good logical sense and it's really nice to say as a sound bite. But to take those moments when you can just sit down and in 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 your own way and and, and I've I've learned to do it. I'll tell you a little bit about my meditative meditative process is there there came a time when I was trying to do meditation where I needed to carve out my my quiet time. And it's like, I need my quiet time. I need to go in here. Don't bother me. Don't bug me. And if I was ever interrupted, it would cause me irritation. I'd be like, I went through that phase too. Isn't that funny? (laughs) It's like, it's like, this is my quiet time. Dang it. (laughs) 
<laughs> and uh, and it didn't take me very long to realize that I'm like, listen, I'm, I must be doing this meditation thing wrong because if I'm getting interrupted in my meditation and I'm like immediately irritated, this is obviously not working. <laughs> I, I need everybody to be quiet so I can meditate. <laughs> That's right. I need everybody else to be able to accommodate my peacefulness. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm like, this, this practice does not reflect reality at all. And so I had to adjust the way that I came to meditation in, and I, it was, it was my wife that had, uh, I think it was something that, um, either Thomas McConkie had done or that, uh, James Finley had done. And in talking about incorporating reality into our meditation, that the meditation is a part of listening to the sounds of incorporating the sounds, incorporating your life into this practice. And man, that changed everything for me because then at that point, just, I, I almost even look for moments of meditation amidst the cacophony of noises of, of the home, you know? Well, it opens up so much because it opens up the possibility of living in a meditative state. Yeah. Moment to moment, day to day. Yeah, from moment to moment. And so being there with, with God in these moments... Um, I sometimes like to look for quiet sol- solitude moments. Sure. But it's also become that when I'm interrupted, there's no agitation anymore. And, right. and that's huge for me. That's huge. And and I love taking the moments of just sitting there long enough to be able to say, I'm going to sit here. I, I, it's hard to do without expectation, but... When I can come to those moments with just the confidence, not the expectation, but the confidence and the awareness of God's love, it's like I, you start to see it pour out of everything. And so at those moments in uh, sitting in kind of a, a sacred silence or in, in, a, in, a, in a silent prayer, and by silent prayer, I mean without words, it's, 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 that, it's that essence where you just bring your essence to God, recognizing he already knows your needs and so it's trying to come to God without the ego and, and just sitting there with God and allowing whatever is present to be there. It's, it's amazing to start to see God's love in everything around. And I, there, there was this moment I had not too long ago of just being able to see it in the tree that was next to me and seeing it in the table that was in front of me. And, and I was sitting outside of my porch and to see it in the house that I was there and, and to see it in the bushes, the plants, and to see it in my family. And suddenly God's love was everywhere. And this awareness that, that there's nowhere I can be that is not in God's love. I'm reminded of times in Texas when I was meditating and walking. And when I called you up to tell you about the trees. Oh, yeah, I remember that. that the, and the way they were communicating both physically in the sense that they reached across from either side of the street and touched, and in a sense that I felt like they were actually talking to me, that they were talking to each other and that they were talking to me. What did that do for you? It was just an incredible sense of peace and belonging. Yeah. Yeah, you inherited the earth, didn't you? Yeah, it was it was mine. I was there. We were one. Yeah. Yeah, there there was a time when uh one of my jobs took me out to Nashville and so my my family we moved for that's when we uh, finally officially broke from living. Utah was you know they talk about Utah being this uh this magnet that it kind of always brings you back, but uh we kind of finally broke from that uh from that 
cosmic circle and, and we ended up in Nashville and it's a completely different culture. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, so it's kind of a bit like going back home for me. And being in Nashville, my wife grew up in, uh, in the East Bay area in California, just, uh, east of, uh, Oakland uh, a little bit. And so that area was, was very green and my wife, bless her heart, she loves everything green. And so <laughs> living in Bakersfield, California in the desert is not exactly <laughs> her favorite place to be. But when we got out to Nashville, anybody who's ever been in Nashville, man, that is like something out of a Lord of the Rings. I mean, the forests are everywhere. It's a beautiful city. So when we moved out to Tennessee, you can go out into the into the countryside, and there are these estates that have been there forever, you know, for 150 years or more, and you can see these rolling green hills. And my wife and I always, always had this uh, dream that we'd like to have a, you know, some property out with green pastures and maybe some horses and some some farmyard animals. Anyway, uh, I remember going along one day, and she she had this experience that she expressed to me. She says, "I I lost my desire of having to own a piece of land." that was mine that I could have claim to. Yeah. I knew this was coming and it's not because I've heard the story before. I felt it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's just like you said. And, I And she had this I, experience I where she looked earth. at and she says, I don't have to own this land to be able to experience it, to be one with it, just driving through it and to be able to experience yeah. nature. It's, it's the idea of ownership that earthly temporal idea of the temporary owner, I own this, right? That gives us this domination narrative that I have to claim this for me to enjoy this. And yet when we get rid of all of those layers of identity, those earthly identities, and we simply be there in nature, that that tree is just that tree. It doesn't recognize that someone owns it. It just is what it is. And it's it's going to keep doing what it does, regardless of anybody. I mean, granted, if someone stops watering it, and you know, and, and if it's not in an environment that can just naturally grow, but in an environment where things naturally grow as they are, they're just going to keep doing what they do. Yeah, this reminds me of of Walden's Thoreau. You mean Thoreau's I read Walden? That a couple of days ago. <laughs> yeah, Thoreau's Walden. Yeah, Thoreau's Walden because he didn't even own the land, right? He he was living on Emerson's land. And of course, Emerson didn't own the land either, but he had a t- he held a title. Yeah, humans in their aren't, aren't we silly with our? I bet God thinks we're so cute that w- that we own the earth because uh, th- that we've inherited the earth in any sense, uh, at least a piece of it, because we have a title. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and it does. I mean, these these earthly titles like ownership they are very useful of course, to yeah. to our society because our society lives and operates by the false self-identities. And in the world of the false self-identities, we draw lines in the ground and we say, this is mine and that's not, and that's yours. And, or this is at least not yours. <laughs> and, so, and it becomes and bet, useful. And I'll bet if Jesus and his disciples were walking from one city to another and your private property said no trespassing, they'd go around it. They would go around it. Yeah. Because they, re, they respect the, they respect the lived experience of someone else, even though they would see, you know, it's silly to draw the lines on the ground. They would still, ex- they would still accept the lived experience. And, and so in this way, we realize that the earth is ours because of our meekness, not because of our ownership. And then when we come to God in supplication and, and outpouring, 
Enos, you know, continuing the story of Enos, he says, And there came a voice unto me, saying, Enos, thy sins are forgiven thee, and thou shalt be blessed. I love that blessed there. I mean, that <laughs> when I read that the first time, after, after getting into the Beatitudes, the first time I read this story afterwards, that was one of those moments of, of uh, that you described about, you know, your breath kind of going out. And I went, oh, there it is. There's the blessedness. It's interesting, though, that it says thou shalt be blessed, you know, whereas the, the Beatitudes say you are blessed. Yeah, I think, I think this is an awareness because the next verse, it comes into saying, and I, Enos, knew that God could not lie, wherefore my guilt was swept away. And now he's blessed. And now he's blessed it, because it wasn't, it, it was that he was always already blessed, but now he reasoned himself into an awareness of it. Well, he felt guilty. He didn't feel blessed. Yeah. And now he feels blessed. It's like, I felt guilty, but then God said this and, and I know God can't lie. And it's just that moment of saying, God can't lie. That now it's like the scales fall from your eyes and you come into the awareness that of what has always already been. Or you drop the rock as it were. Or you drop the rock, <laughs> right? <laughs> rock therapy's over. <laughs> You're not guilty anymore. You're blessed. Now, now this gets in, now it's verse seven that's my favorite. My favorite of the entire story where he says, and I said, Lord, how is it done? This question for me is the question of wonder and awe. You know, it's, uh, I was talking with, uh, with a friend today who had relayed some information. I haven't looked at the actual research. I need to go look it up, but uh, this is just getting relayed on to me. So um, if anybody ever brings this up to me, I guess I'll have to go find it to be able to, <laughs> to verify it. But it came from a good source in that uh, Pew did a re- uh, research uh, and they did a, a poll on a tally on religious groups where they asked two questions. They asked about whether or not your religion brings you peace Versus, and a second question, does your religion, does your religious experience bring you awe or wonder? And when, when asked if your religion brings you peace, Mormonism and, and Jehovah, the Jehovah's Witness scored higher than the national average of other religions. That, that people in Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witness, they scored higher in the self-identity that my religion brings me peace. But where it asks, does your religion bring you wonder or awe, Mormonism actually scored very low, below the average. I have a possible explanation for that. What do you I think? Wonder, I wonder if this is, if this is it. We have, we've talked about this on the podcast before, and we've got an episode coming up. We're excited to, to uh, we're thinking ahead about it, on questions and doubts, contemplating doubt, contemplating questions. Our culture, our religious culture, is all about answers. We have all the answers. And so if you think you have all the answers, I can see how that could bring you peace. But I also see at the same time how you do lose your sense of awe. Yeah. So that's one possible explanation. That is one possible explanation. You know, we, as Latter-day Saints, we do very much uh, perpetuate a culture of Protestantism where our religion is defined by correct and true beliefs. And this is a this is a very very American very Protestant way of looking at religion in that we don't focus necessarily on the moments of awe with God. We look at the the shared and so long as you hold the correct and true beliefs about God. And and this isn't how it started, Shiloh. 
No, it's not how it started. In fact, Ben and I on uh, the Come Follow Me podcast, we talked about the first vision. The thing that inspired Joseph Smith to read James and to go pray in the first place was because he was experiencing people joining these religions from the, you know, the Baptists and the Methodists who were engaged in this high, uh, high emotional uh, camaraderie that they were having there with the Second Great Awakening and all the camp revivals that they were having. But they turned around and they were reviling each other using the scriptures to show how everybody else was wrong. It's like, you, I have, I have this wonderful awe experience with God, and here's the scripture to show you how you're wrong. And this gives a, an entirely new meaning to God couldn't be the author of this confusion, quote unquote. That's right. And that's the confusion he's talking about, is that he realizes he can't settle the question of the experience of God with the scriptures. So he says, I need to go pray to God. And God did not come down and give him scripture, necessarily. He came down and gave him an experience. And isn't it funny how we now take that experience and we turn it into, here's the theology that we can get out of it. Right. How many body parts does God have? How many persons is God? And we turn it into that when when what Joseph Smith had was this experience of God, which, by the way, he told variously, right? Yeah. Because how can you even tell an experience of God? It's ineffable. It's unspeakable. It's beyond words. Yeah. So it's it's not to say that belief is wrong or wrong to have belief, but when you make that the foundation of your discipleship, then you have a lot of drawing near to me with your lips, but your hearts have never experienced me. Yeah, and you're going to have uh, a lack of awe, at least. Right. And so in, the, in that way, this is what I love about Enos's conversion here. And because I see this as, 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 a, as very much a true conversion. And now he goes off to be very, um, very transactional in, the, in some of the last part of his, his methodology. Enos has a lot of uh, circling around in the Beatitudes to do, as is evidenced by the last half of it. But we begin to see like the initial stage of his journey. And in the, in the beginning stages of his conversion, he goes through this hungering and in the hungering, he recognizes this, but this isn't where he's going to get answers. The hungering has to start somewhere to, to address the hungering. He has to start somewhere else. So he pours himself out to his maker. He empties. And this is a state of mourning. And in the state of mourning, you, you, you start to realize that you're nothing. And then, but yet you've been alleviated of all the burdens that are there. So his sins are forgiven him, and now thou shalt be blessed. And Aenus knew that God could not lie, wherefore my guilt was swept away. Now he's standing there, completely weightless from the burdens that he's been carried. In that moment, he's experiencing the absolute awe of God. And it's in that, it's in that emotional state that Enos looks around, and he's like, how, how is this done? I just caught my breath again. It's breathtaking to be in the experience of the awe of, of an experience of God. Yeah. You know, the Lord responds, because of thy faith in Christ, whom thou hast never heard or seen, and many years pass before he shall manifest himself in the flesh, wherefore, go to, thy faith hath made thee whole. You know, this is, this is a magnificent moment. This is, this is his faith kind of curing his own ill. And it continues on. He says, 
Now, when it came to pass that when I had heard these words, I began to feel a desire for the welfare of my brother and the Nephites, wherefore I did pour out my whole soul unto God for them. See, once you come into a recognition where you see God differently, he didn't know God. He'd only had these stories about eternal life and the joy of the saints. And so he prays to God and God responds. And then he sees God differently. He knew that God couldn't lie. So now he sees God differently. And then he sees himself differently. His, the weight of his sins are gone. He doesn't have those identities anymore. And the minute that you have those identities and those identities are gone, now immediately, just like the LDS Bible Dictionary of Definition of Repentance says, we learn to see God, God differently, ourselves, and then the world around us. So immediately he turns to his people, the Nephites. Please bless them. And the Lord says, I will. And, and here's where I, I wrote an article. It's got to be 10 years ago now. Um, called the final stage of testimony, where I talked about this this observance of Enos, and it actually is also had by the sons of Mosiah. The same kind of pattern is there. When we are converted to the Lord, we we seek for our own salvation first, and then kind of the salvation of our local groups, and then from there we expand out into our enemies. Where can listeners read this article, Shiloh? Um, I have this posted on LDS Liberty. Some you'd have to Google LDS Liberty and the, uh, the final stage of testimony. I think I still have it up there. Um, and so when, uh, when we come into the stage of then coming into the love of God, that leads us to a love of ourself, a love of our community, and then a love of enemy. And it's in, it's in this stage where Enos then begins to pray for his Lamanite brothers who are to his people considered the enemy. Now with this kind of experience of God, Shiloh, this is going to lead us, even if we had peace when Pew came asking, if we have this kind of awe of God, we're going to access a higher level of peace, a peace that embraces our enemies. That's a higher level of peace. Yeah. Than just having answers and, you know, knowing, feeling that we have the, the right beliefs and the true church and whatnot. Yeah. There, there's a certain warmth and comfort that certain beliefs will give us. And the awareness of those beliefs and the experiences that sometimes those beliefs can lead us into. And that peace is real and it's important, but there's something more here yeah. that we can access. Yeah. And, and so when I've learned to talk about peace, it's more than just the, either the lack of conflict or of, you know, as, as we've been talking, just this general state of well-being. But when I talk about peace, it's always accompanied with the awe, the awe of God. And, and in a lot of ways, my, my LDS faith and how I've lived it and how I was taught to live it never really produced that for me. And, and I've had to go kind of looking in other directions for it. And then I come back to my faith and I realize it's there. It was always there. It's always there. Um, but it's not always brought to the surface. It's not discussed about or given access to the same way as it is in other places and, and in other shared religions and, and in, in the ways other people talk about. Well, you know, this is one of the reasons for this podcast. It really is one of the main reasons for this podcast is to bring these kind of insights and awareness to listeners from other traditions, as we've you know, plainly admitted in the introduction. Yeah. We're seeking and we're... And, and our tradition teaches us to seek out of the best books. And we're finding, well, and we're taking the best and we're incorporating it. 
and Riley and I have gotten a lot out of it, and listeners have told us they've gotten a lot out of it. You've obviously gotten a lot out of it, so welcome. Yeah. No, it's it, it's a great thing to when we can finally learn to I don't know if I should say finally learn to as if as if, you know, we've we've been failing this whole time. That's that's not what I mean to imply. But when we come to a moment when we have the the conscious desire to expand and to experience God in new ways. I felt you there, Shiloh. Let's take a minute and empty because what is it you said earlier? Today's enlightenment becomes tomorrow's ego trip. Or yesterday's transformation is today's ego trip. There you go. Yeah. So today's transformation is tomorrow's ego trip. Yes. So we're not saying that we've that we or you have had it wrong. We are saying that there's something more, and yet we have to remember there's always something more. We're learning. We're growing. We're accessing higher and higher levels of consciousness, and yet we've got so far to go. I mean, there's God. You know, we have this uh, we have this theology of becoming, and and it's it's very it's a an idea that's woven throughout a lot of scripture and throughout a lot of our our, our ways of of viewing God, and my own journey has led me to a place where I, I no longer think in terms of becoming like a metaphysical becoming as if, because in, in the temple, for instance, there, there's an ascension ritual aspect to it, right? The whole thing is, is talked about as an ascension ritual about how you start with baptism and you ascend up, you know, through the, through the degrees into the celestial kingdom. And then from then into the the ceiling. And yeah, that's something we've covered in a couple of episodes, I think with Morgan Aldis and, as a guest and with Travis Patton yeah, in episodes on alchemy and episodes on the, I think there was one on the Beatitudes or the temple or both as, as Ascension texts. Yeah. And the way I, I'm Dante and I, I, too. Oh, and Dante. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I could definitely see that of Dante. The, uh, the way that I see it now is not necessarily a metaphysical becoming as though that our spirit is becoming lighter but it's in, in the DNC, we learn that all matter is light, light and truth. It's all intelligence. We are always already made in the image of God. We're made now in the image of God. What we are right now is made in the image of God. So nothing's wrong. Nothing's wrong. But what it is is that light is light and what i've come to believe is and see it's been in my own experience is that what we perceive as becoming is not becoming anything it's already what it is what it is it's is more of an unveiling isn't it it's an unveiling it's an awareness yeah we begin to becoming aware how about that we we can keep the becoming and, and add aware yeah it becoming and add aware so we become aware of what we already are. So we're not becoming something metaphysically that we weren't before, but we are always that, and we are simply coming into a new awareness of what we always have been. Well, you know, I, last night I reread the Bhagavad Gita, one of my favorite books of scripture, and it, was it? I think it was from the Bhagavad Gita that I got this. At any rate, that which is, always is, and that which isn't, never was. Either we always already are, or we never were, and never will be. 
reality is what it is, and the reality is that we are in the image of God. That's something we have to uncover. That's something we have to learn to see for ourselves. And it happens in stages, right? It's Again, there's a, there's a cycle to this. It's like I'm aware. Wait, I lost the plot. Where am I? Who am I? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And, and notice I said I didn't go to who am I first. I went to where am I? Where am I is really the, where it starts, right? That's that's a really important question to answer because that's going to get you access to who am I. Yeah, I like that. On on, on that journey of, of becoming where where am I, I like that because it, it assumes I am already who I am. And then at that point, when, once we come to the place where we have to ask the question, where am I? Well, you just start over again. You just start the, the Beatitudes over again. You just start emptying. And because if you have no context to where you're at, then it's just it's time to empty. And, and that's what I love about the Beatitudes is that it is a process that whenever you find that you are in a place where you just don't know where you are anymore, that's perfectly fine. Um, in, in LDS lingo, from what the general authorities would say, I, I think it was Elder Uchtdorf who gave the, les, uh, the, the talk, Lift Where You Stand. Was it Elder Ecuador for uh, Elder Holland? I think it was Holland. It was Holland. Okay. Lift where you stand. Um, it's just you are where you are and you are who you are. Just start there. And and that's one of the things that I talked about to my, you know, when I taught seminary for, for five years, I would tell the students all the time that God is far, far, far less concerned with where you think you're at spiritually. He's far more interested in the direction that you're pointed. And that's why the whole idea of sin and repentance, sin being, again, that archery term, look, if you're facing in the wrong direction, of course you're missing the mark. How can you shoot an arrow and hit the mark if you're facing in the wrong direction? It's all about facing in the right direction. And from then, it's just a matter of practice, right? It's just a matter of living the gospel, and you'll hit the mark. And you'll hit the mark, right. You know, it's, you know, the, the concept of when Jesus says in Matthew five forty eight to be therefore perfect, even as your father in heaven is perfect, perfect there is, we know is the Greek word telos. And telos is, you know, Aristotelian term of our, our, he uses it in the metaphysical distinction of, of our final cause of our purpose and our reason for existence. And so being perfect has been interpreted as fulfill the measure of your creation, fulfill the purpose of your existence. As some end. Yeah. Something to be attained, something to become. Something to become. But God always is and always has been. And so when we are made in the image of God, that brings us back to the that ever-present now, when God is in the now. And so it's not this becoming anything. And so, and so that's why this telos is off, off, sometimes, I think, very confusing in the Christian Sermon on the Mount context, because it really sets up as a journey of becoming something metaphysically, like, like, like become that in which you were meant to become. When its perfection is to fulfill the measure of our creation, is to be aware of that which already is. And our Heritage's Latter-day Saints includes the King Follett Sermon. Let's not forget the King Follett Sermon where we find out that not only has God always been, but so have we. We always already are, and we always have been, and we always will be. Yeah. Well, I've, I've loved the discussion thus far, and, and I love how Enos concludes here because 
this is the righteousness factor. This is, this is, you know, when it says that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, this is what we're talking about is these are these moments when we have emptied out here before God and we are filled with this wonder and awe. When we, this is the right way of living of just being in the moment there with God and in those moments of even just, God, how is that even possible that that just happened? I think what we're trying to say here is, is this what you're saying, Shiloh? Righteousness here means seeing things in the right way, the way they are. Yeah, and, and because I, we, I, sorry, because we tend to. Righteousness tends to be the flip side of sin, and it's you know where sin is this term that's loaded with baggage. Righteousness is the flip side of that, and here we're saying sin is missing the mark, and righteousness is in repentance, seeing things the way they are. And being being facing in the right direction, that's all. Just facing in the right direction. If you hunger and you thirst for righteousness, if you want to face in the right direction, well, then you can be filled. You can be filled. And you know what? I've got. I have a quote here, Shiloh, from again from the Bhagavad Gita. I think I texted it to you last night when I was reading. This is from Bhagavad Gita nine thirty. For even if the gravest sinner worships me with all his soul, he must be considered righteous because of his righteous will. Just the desire to turn, to repent, to face God, to face in the right direction, is, is, that's all it takes to be filled with righteousness, to desire it. It's there for the taking. Yeah. Well, it's already always there. It's just a matter of coming into a realization of it. And when I say coming into a realization of it, that's, that's when it becomes real to us. It always is real, but it, comes, it becomes real to us, is what we mean by realization, to realize that. Yeah, I, and I will add here as, as a moment, because I've, I've talked over the years, I've talked to so many people who have addressed how they've never had how they consider a moment of awe or of, you know, that they've tried, that they've tried to talk, they've tried to get in there. They've tried, they've done everything they can. They've kept the commandments. They kept on doing all these things. They've prayed, they've read the scriptures, they've gone to church, they've done their callings. They've done their, the checklist gospel has been checked off and checked off again. And it's not working. And it's not working. And in a lot of ways, I think what, why this happens is because our identities as members of of the cultural church, so the culture that exists that informs us of our identity, says that we should be experiencing God in one way or another. Now, here's the deal, Christopher. I don't know if you experience the awe of God in the way that I do. How could you? I think, yeah, right? There's There's no way that I can have access to that because all I can do is describe it to you and that's not it. We're back to the first vision again. It's ineffable. And if I try to describe it, I might describe it this way one time and another way another time, and, and neither one of those descriptions is the experience of God. Right. And so, and so what I'm saying is if there's anyone who's listening who is like, yeah, they're just full of crap. Um, now, that could I, be a large I, I, portion I of our audience, you know. <laughs> and everyone could be. And I, I, I want you to know that I, I see you and I feel that. Um, my... If I'm completely honest with myself, my my adult life has been filled with 
what I called spiritual experiences that I, I, I had a very real intentionality of accessing God. Um, and I could go on for hours about how I was raised and about the experiences that I had in trying to fill the spirit and, and in doing so and having, of having good spiritual experiences, but the awe, speaking about the awe, one of the things that I had to eventually consciously and to, to recognize something consciously and logically is one thing to put it into practice is another to actually let it sink in, to become a part of yourself is an entire thing completely all to itself. And that's the hard thing for me is, is to recognize that and, and, and to, and to uh, eventually experience that. And one of the things that I had to do is I had to let go of, of all of my hidden expectations as to what it was that God was being around me. Because all of my expectations were rooted in my ego. And my ego, this filter by which I see the world, uh, informed me of, of the way that I was supposedly supposed to see God. And God was not revealing himself in that way. So therefore, I was not having the peace. I was not having the comfort. I was not having anything. I was not seeing God the way that I thought I needed to see God to have peace the way that I thought peace should be. And there was one moment in particular in my life where it was in my pain, uh, anxiety, depression, pain, confusion, where God and I were not on good terms. Well, I wasn't on good terms with him anyway. He was, you know... I've later learned in my life uh, through experience, I'm never not on good terms with God, but he was not on good terms with me. And it's in that moment, I call, I've call i called God all sorts of names uh, to, his, to his proverbial face, <laughs> out into the ether, out into the cosmos, whatever. I've invented some names. I've, uh, I've, I've, used, I've used the list. I've, I've gone through the gambit. And it was in my pain that I first really experienced God sitting next to me. And it came in such a way that it didn't alleviate the pain. It was just in the pain. And it gave a new perspective to me that when, God's, when God created the earth and he said, it is good, it's like, well, how can good exist with the pain? And I will never be able to put words to this experience that will ever adequately express it or communicate what it was like. Because I can think of so many things to say right now as I'm, I'm saying this right now, I can think of so many ways of responding. The, 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 the Shiloh pre this experience in his pain would have said to Shiloh now trying to explain the situation and this experience, the Shiloh before would have had a lot of things to argue with what I'm saying right now, because there are no words for me to adequately express the experience. But suffice it to say, I had an experience where I did not deserve God's love. Um, I was not qualifying for it. Um, I was not working towards it. I was very angry. Call it whatever you will. And no matter what I did, I did not chase God away. No transaction was possible. You didn't have the means with which to transact, and yet you were transformed. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was in that moment of not even 
of not expecting anything from God, where I was finally, I think I put myself into a place where I was allowed to just, I allowed myself just to experience whatever I was going to experience. And so there have been times since then in in like in meditation or in, in other places of just silent prayer, when I want to go to have a, I want to go to have an experience and what I have and what, what I experience of that is, is nothing. And I think I've experienced more nothing than I have something. And, and I was like, man, what gives? It's like, I go to have these Enos kind of experiences and I pray and nothing happens until finally I had to start recognizing that the nothing that was happening, there was, there, there was something in that nothing. I love that. There's something in the nothing. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that there's something, it's a hard thing to talk about. It's just, there was nothing there. I wasn't getting like any kind of feedback, but yet I became completely at rest with it. And it was in that moment when those are probably the moments of awe that I have the most is in the moments of nothing. And I don't know how to explain that better. Um, because that does, that sounds like complete and absolute nonsense, <laughs> but that's my experience, and it, it doesn't happen a lot, but it has happened sufficiently for me to know that it is an experience that is there. Could you say with the Prophet Joseph Smith that you know it, and you know that God knows it? Is it like that? Yeah, it is a lot like that. You know, I think in my own experience, too, I've gotten glimpses here and there when I stop chasing them, sometimes in meditation and only when I stop chasing them, where they just come, where you just let go and let God, and there he is, and he just, you know, peekaboo, and then you start chasing him, and then he's gone again. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And... And when you have those experiences, if you have an experience like that, it's so easy to talk yourself out of it, you know, especially if it doesn't show up in the way that that it's supposed to, right? I I hear you saying that. Just be with it. Just be with God. He's with you. Be with him. Is that what it means to be filled with righteousness? That's my experience of what it means, yes. All right, then. We'll leave it at that. We don't have the answer. We have an answer, and it's brought us peace. And we know it, and we know God knows it. Well, thank you for being with us. Thank you for being with me, Shiloh. Thank you for letting me be here. And we look forward to having you with us again. I look forward to it. Have a great week. You too.